Fam, how are we doing? I'm really excited to talk, uh, preach to you from Matthew 5. Before we do that, I have one more exciting announcement. <clears throat> I'm already married, so it's not that. Um, we have uh, our youth ministry here is R116. That's what it goes by. And we have an exciting event coming up at the end of the summer called Youth Camp. We join with uh, one of our sister churches, Covenant Fellowship Church, that has a little bit more resources to put on a large-scale uh, competitions, teams, activities, late-night fun stuff going on. Uh, I've actually went to it when I was a youth, and it was some of the most foundational uh, moments of my encounters with God that formed my faith at this camp. So we're making a big push uh, for if you're in, in the youth, if you're uh, headed into seventh grade um, or a graduating senior, that you sign up uh, for this. I'll be there. My wife, Missy, will be there. I'll actually be uh, giving one of the sermons there. So we'll be there. It should be a really fun time to uh, not only share a memory together, but also perhaps spiritually have something happen with you and God that maybe has never happened before. Um, and so I just encourage you to uh, sign up at the uh, website, so www.covfell.org. You can find Youth Camp and, and go ahead and sign up. Just select that you're coming from Risen Hope. <clears throat> Well, we're going to dive into God's Word. When I was uh, prepping for Matthew 5, um, I stumbled across this article that I thought illustrated one of the temptations that Jesus is addressing in this passage. It was written by Stephen Nolan. He wrote this story in 2013. He said, It takes a strong mind and a lot of willpower to become a monk and feel closer to God. But one man has taken his devotion to new heights, literally. Maxime Kavdarze, a 59-year-old monk, has lived a life of virtual solitude on top of a pillar high above his Georgian monastery for 20 years. I believe we have a picture of this, uh, this man and his pillar. When he wants to, to leave this pillar, he spends 20 minutes getting down a 131-foot ladder. Supplies are taken up to him by his followers, and he only comes down twice a week to pray with his followers. But having worked as a crane operator before taking his orders in 1993, Maxime has always had a head for heights. He says, it's up here in the silence that you feel God's presence. Now, the question is, is this what God calls us as Christians to do? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just ascended a mountain of his own, or maybe a hill of his own, and he's gathered the disciples around him. Will he call them to isolate from the world? Will he tell us that if we're really serious about worshiping him, we'll separate, build our own pillars in Drexel Hill or the Poconos or Maniac? Well, Jesus gets right to that very question in our text. And in the past few weeks before um, Easter Sunday, we've, we've been in this, this Beatitudes section, the Sermon on the Mount of, of Matthew 5, and we've seen that King Jesus has been teaching his disciples about his kingdom. And we can imagine him on this mount with his disciples gathered around at his feet and the crowds below him just buzzing with excitement. You see, the, the disciples had only just started following him, and the crowds around him were just who is this man? They were wondering. He had done all these amazing miracles and exorcisms, and his teachings were filled with such authority that they were just wondering, what is he going to say next? And he laid out 
the Beatitudes, those distinctive markers of what it looks like to follow Jesus and the promised blessing for each one. And in the Beatitudes, he was teaching the disciples what people who wanted to be a part of his kingdom would look like. Blessing is ascribed to all who are poor in spirit, mourn, are meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. If you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard sermons on each one of those Beatitudes. But now, Jesus shows his disciples how they are to interact with the dark and fallen world around them. Each, as the Beatitudes were listed by Jesus, I'm sure the disciples were thinking, how does this impact how I relate with the people of this world? How does this relate to the type of community that we're going to form right after we hear this teaching? And in fact, we can still find ourselves struggling with that same question. Should we be like this monk and find God by removing ourselves from the world? Not literally building a pillar, but essentially separating us ourselves off from the world. Well, Jesus speaks into these questions by defining us as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Christians shouldn't separate from the earth. Both the salt and the light metaphors show us that Christians, far from being removed from the world, are by definition incredible influencers and means of grace to the world around us. Look with me in verse 15, where Jesus' statement culminates. He says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, the full weight of that command landed on the disciples' question. And it also travels the millennia of time between us and this statement and lands on our ears as well. So King Jesus today is commanding us to influence others to magnify the glory of God. King Jesus is commanding us to influence others to glorify God, to magnify the glory of God. Jesus' vision is bigger than what we think of ourselves, isn't it? We look in the mirror, we see a weak, feeble, terrible person sometimes, and he looks at us and says, you are salt, you are light, and you are an influencer made by me to make others glorify God. So he commands us, you must be influencers of others to magnify the glory of God, but how do we do this? And like always in Scripture, we see there's layers to this influence. There's actually two ways we live as Christians that help us be that salt and light, that influencer of others to magnify the glory of God. Here they are. These are going to be my two points for this sermon. We live authentically and we live publicly. That's it. We live authentically and we live publicly. That's how we influence others to magnify the glory of God. So first, we live authentically. Let's, let's see this in the text. Well, verse 1 Jesus starts by just saying, you are the salt of the earth. Now, that's a little weird. We don't call each other salt. In fact, I had to learn when I was teaching uh, at Mastery in Philly for the first year. Kids started telling me, uh, you're salty. And I was like, what are you talking about? 
Uh, and I was, I was like, uh, actually, um, I'm made of mostly organic bonds, not ionic. And they were like, you know, they did one of those. I had to learn that that was just them saying, I'm, I'm upset for no reason. But when Jesus says you are salt, he's drawing on the image of the taste of salt. He's saying that you are the salt of the earth and you bring taste to an otherwise tasteless world. Grace to an otherwise empty world. So have you ever stopped and thought this question? So Jesus, I, I just, I trusted in you. I'm following you. Why, are you. why am I still here? Right? Why can't I just go to heaven right now? Well, Scripture gives us a few reasons. The reason that Jesus gives us here is because we are the salt. We bring taste to the taste, tasteless, and as, as we will see, we bring light to the darkness. He's the, we're the imprint of Christ here in this world. Now, as a chemistry teacher, you know, I know that sodium chloride, right, NaCl, it doesn't actually lose its taste. You know, pure salt can't lose its taste. So what's Jesus talking about here? Well, in the ancient world, what was commonly sold as salt actually was a bunch of impure stuff mixed together. And what would happen was on really humid days, the salt would actually leave out, and all that you'd have left is trash. So what would be sold as salt really would be mostly trash. And so he says, if salt loses its taste, all you've got left is, is, is worthy of being trampled over by your feet. So you can see there, there's a sense where the, 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 the authenticity, the importance of salt is directly linked to how it tastes. If salt loses its taste, it's pointless. Now, I can agree that salt is very tasty. I'm one of those people that when I get French fries, it's a little bit of French fry with a lot of salt. Um, and so, so I can agree with it that, that that's definitely true. But what we can say, see here is that there's an analogy that if salt loses its taste, it re actually reveals that it's not actually salt, right? So what, what people were, were ingesting and thinking was salt was actually trash, and when they took it in, they realized, that's not the salt that I bought. And in the same way, Jesus is telling us that if we lose our Christian flavor, there's no other source besides God himself that can give us back our salty taste. The way we live is the flavor of our lives. Now, um, I had this, this formative experience when I was six years old. My, my mother and father... Um, had this brilliant idea to take a six-year-old on a, a multi-day bike trip from Drexel Hill to Philadelphia to Norris down to Lancaster. Um, we did it as a family trip, and it was awesome. It was one of the most formative events in my life, and we got to the end of this multi-day trip. We were completely exhausted. My three older sisters were so excited because we were going to have French fries when we finally got to the restaurant, we get there, the, I believe the girls went into the bathroom, and my dad said, I got an idea. He takes out the sugar, and he pours it on the French fries. They came back and took a bite eagerly, right? French fries, oh, it's been so long. And they spat it out. They were outraged because the taste of the sugar revealed it wasn't salt, right? And it's the same thing with us, guys. We have, the way we live our lives gives off a flavor that reveals the authenticity of our faith. Similarly, the world will know that we are salt by the way we, we taste or we live. So have you ever met a person 
that says they're a Christian but doesn't act in a way that fits the description. What does that do? It leaves a bad taste in our mouths. But this ought not to be so. King Jesus just identified us as the salt of the earth. He doesn't say sometimes you're salt, sometimes you're not. He says you are the salt. And he calls us to live authentically Christian lives even as authentic salt has an extremely good taste. So what does it look like to live a life like a Christian should taste? Well, the seasoning of the Beatitudes is the flavor of authenticity. We live authentically. If we live the Beatitudes, we've been learning about the past few weeks, we'll be influencing those who don't believe in Jesus because we will be living authentic lives. So what do the Beatitudes say? They say, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Kingdom followers should be poor in spirit as they examine their sin and realize their incredible need for their Savior. Have you, have you stopped feeling remorse for your sin? Have you stopped caring how you, your sins affect God or affect others? Or do you have sin that's hidden and unrepented of? The, the, the flavor of the Christian is not perfection but it is sorrow for sin. To be salt is to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. The salt of the earth is marked by meekness and mercy in the interactions with others. Not by weakness, but by meekness. Though you may be powerful, confident, and strong, you don't assert yourself unless you need to. You don't force your own way unless you have to. To be salt is to be meek. We should be voracious in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you zealous to grow in God or are you more complacent, engaging in maybe entertainment patterns you know are inappropriate and just waiting until you feel bad enough to stop? The flavor of the Christian is someone who's constantly looking at their life, seeking to be fully devoted to living in holiness and defending the righteousness of others, too. To be salt is to have a massive appetite for righteousness. And the flavor of the Christian is that we respond to persecution with joy. Perhaps you've been sinned against and are dealing with a loved one that is continuing to sin. How are you salt? You remain eager to extend mercy to the sinner knowing that you have received the greater mercy. And to be salt is to extend mercy. And though the potential praise of man constantly lures us, attracts us, and entices us, we stand firm as the pure of heart. And we care only about what God thinks, and we shall see God and be blessed by each of his loving rewards in heaven. To be salt is to be pure in heart. You see, as we're walking through each of these beatitudes, what does it mean to live a flavorful life? Salt means to live the beatitudes. We, we're an agent of reconciliation in our relationships. We're, we're peacemakers. And even when we're beaten, slandered, reviled, 
or in other ways unjustifiably attacked, we rejoice. We rejoice knowing that God doesn't miss a single wound, a single scar, or wrong, and he will reward each act of perseverance. To be salt is to be persecuted and respond with joy. This is how we are salt and bring taste to the tasteless. We bring spiritual poverty to an egomaniacal world, mourning to the numb, meekness to the power-hungry, zeal for God to the self-centered, mercy to the vindictive, purity to the twisted, courage to the attacks of the enemy. That's who we are when Jesus says we are salt. But friends, if we are truly going to be poor in spirit, we've got to admit that these descriptions don't always line up with who we are. When non-Christians sometimes catch a whiff of us, we smell bad. To be too busy to talk, to be too angry about a political viewpoint, to see the suffering, sad, broken person on the other side of the computer screen to be too focused on our own interests and what's best for ourselves than to put others' concerns before our own. Guys, we're all in danger of losing our taste. We're all in danger of living differently than we're believing, tasting way different than salt, living in a way that seems to point to the opposite of the Beatitudes. If we look at how we use our time, how we use our social media accounts, conversations, our resources, I think many of us would find that we taste far more like we believe the following unbeatitudes. This is written by Ray Ortland. It'll be on the screen. This is like the inverse of every beatitude. Congratulations to the entitled, for they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. And congratulations to the popular, for the world lies at their feet. None of us will go on paper and say, yeah, that's me. None of us would put that on our social media account. But what does our heart say? What does our practice say? What does our taste say? Does your life look more like the unbeatitudes are important to you or the beatitudes? And is there an area that God is graciously calling us to repent today? Jesus is preaching to us this Sermon on the Mount. He's telling us we're salt of the earth and that we should be influencers in this world. Why? Because we cannot influence as salt. We cannot bring people to Jesus without an authentic testimony. We can minister and sing the most beautiful song ever. We can cast out demons We can speak a word of comfort to somebody, but if they find out that our lives don't match up with what we believe, we push them further away rather than draw them to. We don't act like salt. 
we act the opposite. And the opposite of authenticity is hypocrisy. And I'm with you in this, guys. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself too. Hypocrisy happens when the is of our lives doesn't match the ought. When we don't do what we say, when, we, we, when our beliefs don't match our actions. And I was struck by this, this, this article I was reading by Michael Shermer. He's a New York Times bestseller. And he cited a, 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 a really, just, just for me, a devastating reason for why he became an atheist. Now, it has some, some, um, some language that is, that is a bit uh, risque, and so I, I do ask that, that, that you, you um, use discretion, you know, in, in sharing this. But I think it's important because it shows us how our witness can impact unbelievers. This is what he says. He says, it wasn't a logical argument or the undeniable evidence of science that drove him away. It was the testimony of his roommate that was the tipping point. He said, there, there were the inevitable hypocrisies that arose from preaching the ought but practicing the is. And he cites this particular example. One of my doormates regularly prayed for sex, rationalizing that he could be a better witness for the Lord with all that pent-up libido. And that's, that's a flagrant example. Maybe it's beyond one that might fit your own life. But we see the devastating impact as this guy went on to become a New York Times bestseller and just proud of the fact that he's an atheist. Grieving our, our Lord ought to be enough. The God said don't ought to be enough to make us resist. But when we add to this the fact that we're salt of the earth and we're the way God draws people, it just breaks us, breaks us of our sin patterns. How we live really impacts whether people see Christianity as credible. And terrifyingly, if we don't live authentically, we raise the obstacles that folks have to overcome to turn to the Lord. Later, Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world and that a city on a hill cannot be hidden if our lives can't be hidden. Here's what John Calvin says. This means that they, Christians, ought to live in such a manner as if the eyes of all were upon them. Is there, is there an area that's, that, that's not true of in your life? Is there, a, is there an area like your internet history your Netflix choices, people knew those. Would it push people closer to Jesus or would it make unbelievers run further away? Does the way you handle conflict in your marriage reflect the Beatitudes? Does your life look authentic as a Christian in the classroom? Brothers and sisters, you are the salt to your neighborhood. You are the salt to your school, your job, your home, your marriage, your kids, and your impact is determined by the authenticity of your Christian life. You've been set on a hill to influence the world by your king. Why must we do this? Why must we live authentically? Because our lives are not our own. Our lives 
are put here to be influencers of others to magnify the glory of God. It's all about his glory. And this is why Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It's about God getting glory through our lives by us living out an authentic Christian witness. So King Jesus commands us to influence others, to magnify the glory of God. And how do we do that? We do it by living authentically. And this looks like living the Beatitudes. We also do this by living our lives publicly. This moves to our second point. We live authentically. We live publicly. Look with me in verse 14. He says, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not only salt, we're the light shining into darkness. And Jesus uses two images here to bring out the fuller meaning of how we are light, of the light of the world. He says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now think about that for a second. You don't put a city on top of a hill to hide it. You put it on a, a hill to make a statement. We're here, we're in the position of strength, so bring it on. You put a lighthouse way up so that ships that pass by can see it from all angles. Jesus has made us a city on a hill, and we're to live our lives transparently, vocally, publicly, and visibly from all angles. We are to shine our light. And similarly, Jesus says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. Now, in Jesus' day, clay jars, or these, this word baskets here, would oftentimes be placed over torches if you wanted to travel around, but more in secret, so that people wouldn't see you coming. And so the idea here is, Jesus uses this word for, for hiding that seems to point to concealment. He didn't leave us here, Jesus, to, to live concealed lives where we're putting things around us so no one can see us. He left us here to shine our lives. He didn't leave us here to never speak up, to never share our faith, to never fight for justice, to never rock the boat, to never befriend a person who doesn't believe in him. No, he put us here to shine our light. He put us here to live lives of transparent luminosity. And he saved us to radiate. And there's a serious temptation, I feel it myself, that every Christian faced in their life to live private lives, selfishly and or totally separating themselves from non-Christians. Especially in America, suburban America especially, where we have our own driveways, have our own house, our own thing, so easy to live separated from the world. Satan wants to corrupt us. He wants to take our authenticity and destroy it. But if he can't do that, he'll settle by getting you to conceal your life. Just don't let them shine. Don't let them impact anybody else. That, that original word that Jesus uses for hidden in this is krubenai. And it, it actually implies in the word that you're hiding because you want to protect yourself. This, this, this fear is what's driving behind us, behind, behind us wanting to conceal our lives and not shine. Satan loves to play on the fear, saying, don't 
say that at work because if you do, somebody will hate you. He loves saying, don't say that. It'll make your life more difficult. We've all had that moment of panic when we see an opportunity, but we're terrified to open our mouths. So are, are we living in fear? Are we failing to open our mouths and shine because of the potential consequences? Have you separated your life to the point where you have minimal contact with the world? Are you, maybe, maybe you're just done with the world. You've been burned. You realize how broken this world is, and so you just are in retreat mode from the world. Maybe you're like this monk who had, who had been negatively impacted by the world so many times that you just don't want to deal with it, and you go up on top of a pillar. You separate yourself because it's easier. Or maybe you haven't intentionally done this, but it's just kind of happened when you look at your schedule. Maybe you've just filled your life with church events to the point where you're never actually interacting with your neighbors. Friends, how can we shine if we're never getting close enough to the darkness to reach it with our light? Maybe it's laziness that's kept you from shining. This is, this is where God was just ripping my heart apart and prepping this. I, I have failed to shine my light because of laziness. I, I, had, a, I had my neighbor come, come over one day, and, and uh, I was standing outside. I forget why, but she just started asking me all these questions about Christianity. And it was this great conversation. And she said, you know what? Every day we take walks, me and this other woman, and would you ever want to come take a walk with us and talk about it? It was like an open door for the gospel, and I never initiated again. A pastor. Shine your light. Let the whole world see. What's the reason for you? Why aren't you shining? Are you okay with that? Spirit of God, I pray right now, would you fall? There are areas right now that we need to be shaken up about. Would you do that? We want to shine. Friends, we've been left on earth until Jesus comes back or calls us home to shine bright for Jesus. And even if our words in life are of the most exquisite taste and seasoning, I'm just as useless as a tasteless Christian if I don't shine my light. Jesus commands others to influence Jesus commands us to influence others to magnify the glory of God. And we do this by going public with our faith. We shine our light. Maybe today you realize you've been living a little bit like a fake Christian. God's shown you that you're not acting like the salt he calls you. Maybe you know that you're avoiding unbelievers out of fear of what might happen. That you're not shining like you ought. Where do we go, friends? You know. Where do we go? One direction. We run to Jesus. How can salt regain its tastiness if it loses it? There's no place to go but the place that originally made it salt. He alone, Jesus Christ, can turn the power hungry into the poor in spirit. A thirst for blood 
into a hunger for righteousness, look at the life of Paul. He can turn wrath to mercy, bitterness to joy, hands that are grabbing for glory to hands that are clinging for faith. Oh, King Jesus didn't come to us when we were already salt and just make us taste better. No, King Jesus came to me when I was tasteless, when I was poisonous. The mixed drink of sin and flesh was transformed into salt. He took a life that was hidden in darkness that only cared about its own protection, filled with love of myself and comfort and cowardly fear of others, and he made it into salt and light. And friends... He can do this and help us today. Amen? He isn't just here to help us, brothers, though. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sins, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world by grace. So your character and your witness and your influence are all yours because he gave them to you. And he, continue, he can continue giving you grace even now to live as the salt and the light of the earth. Think about it. The disciples hadn't worked for the status that Jesus just dropped on them. They just started following and he said, you are the light, you are the salt. And we didn't have to work to achieve the status of the salt of the earth or the light of the world. This is what we become when we follow Jesus. Just like a candle doesn't just light itself, God was the one who came in and regenerated our hearts, ignited our wick. He set us ablaze by his incredible grace, and he promises right now, right here, right in this very room to send us fresh oxygen, to send us fresh fuel, and to light that fire so you can shine, brothers and sisters, to a level of radiance that you never have before. Do you believe? Do you believe that you can shine? Because our God is here, and he can help us to shine. He made us salt and light. We didn't do it. He did it, and he can help us to shine our lights. God's promised us that if we run to him in repentance, he will make us shine like lights. And so he says to us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He wouldn't tell you that. He wouldn't command that of you if he wasn't going to give us grace, right? He gives us those commands because he's promised to come along. It's almost like saying to a ship in the ocean, sail. All you have to do is put down the sail. I will make the wind blow. God will make us shine. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you look in the mirror in the morning, you come back at the end of the day and you're surprised what you look like? Book of James talks about that. Usually I'm kind of depressed by it. You know what the funny thing is? God never forgets what we're like. Yeah, he sees the flaws. He does see the failures. He sees the weakness. He sees the fears. But when he looks at us, he sees over top of all of that the purity of the salt of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus lived the Beatitudes. The disciples would see what these Beatitudes looked like every step and every day that they walked with Jesus from that point forward. And now, that record of salt and light, of shining in dark places like Jesus did, it's yours. It's how God views you. 
Jesus was the light of the world who stepped down into darkness. And in God's eyes, you are the salt and the light. Friends, have you forgotten who God made you to be? Have you forgotten that you're lights in this world? Have you forgotten that you're the salt of the earth? This is the glorious life we get to live. Philippians 2, 14 says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why? What's going to happen? So you can shine as lights in the world. We live lives of integrity, of authenticity, not grumbling, not complaining, so that we shine like lights in the world. And Jesus is shining through us when we shine. This is the amazing thing. People get to know what Jesus is like by the way that that you're shining. Isn't that amazing? As you go back to a home where children are just going crazy, as you go into a job where your coworkers are just angry all the time, as you go outside and someone tries to cut you off and you shine, right? There's a sense where you show them what Jesus Christ is like. When we turn the other cheek, when we love on and on and on and on, we are the light that God has put in this world to shine for the whole world to see. And so, friends, we must shine our lights. King Jesus commands us to influence others to magnify the glory of of God. And so as we move to a close, there's really two Two questions I want us to consider. Tim's going to lead us through a time of reflection after this. The first question is this. Is there an area of your life that's being compromised? Is there an area of your life that's compromising your testimony? Just think of one area. An area that's not very salt-like that you need to repent of. I challenge you to confess that sin now and share with someone close to you how you're going to seek to change by God's grace today. So is there an area of your life compromising your testimony? Second question, do you need to rearrange your life to interact more with unbelievers? Do you need to rearrange your life to interact more with unbelievers? Do you move from having a basket? Do you need to move from having a basket over your life to putting it in a, on a lampstand, essentially. So these two categories. So one area in your life that is being co- compromising your testimony, and then is there a need for you to rearrange your schedule to interact more with unbelievers? With that, let me just pray, and I'll ask Tim to come up. Lord, when we think about this, Lord, there's a simultaneous interaction that happens of both the weight of this, that you would call us the salt and the light, We feel the weight of that. But there's also a dignity to our walk. An amazing privilege to be a Christian. So Lord, I pray right even now, God, that as we move to a time of reflection, that the goal would be to grow in our love for God, to grow in our our holiness as we pursue you, and to shine brighter for your glory. May there not be any condemnation in this room right now. But may we do serious work of confession and repentance. In the name of Jesus, amen.